But I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles today to Jonah. Chapter 3. verse 3 through verse 10. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let us pray. Hide me behind your cross, Lord Jesus. Articulate the Father's heart through my voice. And let the Holy Spirit breathe new life to us, opening our ears to hear the message of God. Amen. Amen. Some of you may remember the Paul Harvey radio broadcast piece called The Rest of the Story. Actually, I can't say it exactly like him. The Rest of the Story. (laughs) My voice doesn't go that low. If, if you don't remember, Paul Harvey would tell stories about people and leave their identity unrevealed in its entirety until the end, telling the trivial information that made celebrities or historical figures seem much more human and perhaps a little less extraordinary. For example, the young man Al, who was so terrible at household finance that his wife managed their budget with much chagrin and hand-wringing, was the first Treasury Secretary of the United States, Alexander Hamilton. Or the vicar of Epworth, whose son was saved from a burning house just in the nick of time, was Sam Wesley, the father of John Wesley, the boy who was saved from the fire. These rest of the stories give us a glimpse into the persons, and in many ways, for some of us, the story of Jonah is the kind of story that we need to know the rest of in order to make sense of it. Most of us have heard the story of the guy who was told to go to Nineveh and instead went and got on a boat. We know that the boat was hit by a big storm. And we know that the sailors asked everyone what was going on. They were asking each other, what is happening? Which one of you is doing this? They lived in a very superstitious time. And so they were certain that someone was the cause of the storm that was on the boat. 
They were asking everyone, and Jonah was sound asleep in the back of the boat. They went and woke him up. They said, dude, we're dying. Is this your fault? And he's like, oops. Yeah, probably it is. Uh, I think God's pretty mad at me. Uh, You should probably just throw me overboard. They were like, whoa, I don't know if we should do that. They are like, nope, nope, trust me. Throw me overboard. This is the way that everything will be fine. So they did. They threw him overboard. The sea calmed. Everything was great, except for Jonah, who was swallowed by a big fish. By the way, you may have heard whale, but scripture never really says that. We just tend to make generic terms specific over time. It's just a big fish. It may have just been the only one of that type that swallowed Jonah. And Jonah was inside the big fish for three days. We don't know if he was awake all that time, if he was asleep, what was going on. But for three days, Jonah's hanging out in the belly of a big fish. It does not sound pleasant to me. It does not sound like it was very fun. And at the end of it, Jonah prays a prayer of repentance and remorse, and the fish vomits him out. Yes. In case you were wondering, puke is biblical. There you go. But when Jonah gets out of the fish, he's standing on a beach, and he realizes he needs to do what he was told. Took a little bit of convincing, but he needs to do what he was told and go to Nineveh. And there is usually where the children's version of this story kind of ends. We don't hear the part that comes after. The part that I just read where Jonah goes and does what he's told. Because usually with Jonah, everybody is focused on the disobedience and Jonah's repentance. And those are the easy parts of the story to focus on. They're obvious. And we should certainly remember that, as one commentary I read this week said, everyone is either headed to Tarshish, the disobedient place, we might be on the boat, or to Nineveh, the way that God has called everyone to follow and proclaim the gospel. That's an important thing to remember. But that's not the whole story of Jonah. And it's not even the most important part of the story of Jonah. Because the rest of the story of Jonah is really interesting. And one of the key things that we can take away from it is that God's love is for everyone. Big news. The rest of scripture tells us that too. Jonah tells us as well that God's love is for everyone and God's mercy is always available. The verses we read from chapter 3 make it apparent that God sent Jonah at just the right time with just the right words to the people of Nineveh. Because Jonah turns out to be the most effective and efficient preacher ever in the history of mankind. He walks one day into a city that takes three days to cross. And he preaches the shortest message ever. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Okay. 
There's no detailed information, nothing else that happens in there. And everyone responds with repentance. Everyone, from the king to the peasant, even the animals go on a fast. And God relented. And Jonah should have been thrilled. He should have been delighted. God used him. God redeemed those that he was sent to. God worked in the lives of an entire city. But, plot twist, Jonah was ticked. Chapter 4, verse 1, But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He's mad. He had some reasons for not going to Nineveh in the first place. One of them was because he came from a country that feared the Assyrians as a constant threat. Nineveh was their headquarters. So having God wipe them out probably was a good thing to Jonah's mind. He's like, bring it. Go ahead. I'm just going to sit here and wait on the 39th day. Then maybe I'll go and tell him. But I'd really like for it to just happen the way you've said it. Right? But he goes there and he preaches and they repent. Because when he refused to go, he's trying to save the people that he loves, the people around him. He's like... I feel like I'm doing a good, solid service here for my people. And God said, no, this is not what I'm asking you to do. Because God says, I love them too. And Jonah can't see that. Because Jonah feels very certain that God should only love the people he likes, the people he loves, the people in his country. They shouldn't. God should not be a fan of the Ninevites. The Ninevites are horrible. To Jonah's mind, allowing Nineveh the chance to repent was probably something like releasing Saddam Hussein or walking into Osama bin Laden's house and telling him that the SWAT team was on their way. This is what it feels like to Jonah. That This is what he's done. He stopped God from punishing them. He wants to see judgment, and God says, no, I'm not interested in judgment today. Nineveh was really, really awful. (laughs) The people would, when the Assyrians would defeat a nation, The people would walk in and they would take body parts off of people whom they had defeated and wear them. They were not nice people. Jonah was right to be afraid of them. Jonah was right to think that their destruction would be a good thing. They were cruel and mean, and God spared them because they repented in the face of Jonah's prophecy, and Jonah was angry. Because God still looked on these cruel and harsh people and loved them. 
And Jonah could not understand that kind of love. Jonah could not understand why God would want to give them even the chance at repentance. He's like, why would you even send me, God? Let alone actually stay the execution. So Jonah storms off and he pouts. He's actually really good at it. He says, he goes, Isn't this what I said, God, when I was still at home 500 miles away, by the way? Probably took me a little longer because I went by way of ship. But this is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I know that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah's saying, I knew you were going to do this, God. Spoiler alert, I knew you were going to spare him. So why did you even bother to send me? That's not all of Jonah's concern here, right? But he's kind of like saying, really, God? What did you even need me for? But he says... The thing that we have been saying every single week is that God is gracious and compassionate and abounding in love. God has a great love for even the most heinous among us. Even the most hateful are given opportunity to gain mercy. And Jonah's book and Jonah's proclamation about who God is are one and the same. We read it in Jonah 4.2, what I just said. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. The entire book of Jonah is about a God who loves and is gracious and compassionate. This God cares deeply about those who are not even in covenant relationship with him those who have so many marks leveled against them. The people of Nineveh have no expectations of mercy. They don't even know necessarily what right from wrong are. In fact, God says it at the very end of chapter 4. He says, Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? They don't even know what they're doing is wrong. And God says, let me come in there. Let me love them. Jonah is angry because he doesn't like that God is willing to love even these. But we too are fortunate that God is a God of slow anger and long compassion. Because we too, even as Jonah did, have received the benefit of God's grace. We too have sinned and turned and been granted a reprieve from the devastation of a sinful heart. We have heard Jesus cry, repent, and have turned away from what we once were to become what God has called us to. We have received mercy, and we didn't deserve, in times when we have been reluctant to give it. We have scoffed at God's mercy to others and wished for a different outcome. And still, God calls us to love. 
God calls us to live in right relationship with God and with each other. God asks us to let go of the things that have held us back from loving one another and others around us. And we can find ourselves in this story either as Jonah, unwilling to recognize the depth of God's mercy and its extension to those who seem most unworthy, or we can find ourselves in this story as Ninevites, recognizing the very depths of our own mistakes and sins and longing for the better news, the good news of redemption. Either way, Here's the rest of the story. God is slow to anger, gracious and compassionate, abounding in love. And it's better than a guy who gets eaten by a big fish and lives to tell the tale. Because it's about a God who is waiting with open arms for you. So as we have been doing every week in this series, I'd ask you to pull out your blue sheet. And be ready to read the bolded words as we go along. What does it mean to say God loves? To create us, to form us from the dust. To let us fail, to let us choose our own way over God's. To let us chain ourselves to sin and defeat and heartbreak and sorrow and death. To provide a rescue, a way back through wanderers, murderers, adulterers, defaulters, promise breakers, foreigners, strangers, and lovers. To show us mothers, judges, kings, and prophets who loved and spoke for God and kept reminding us of the promise of redemption. To show us how evil and wrong continually mess things up and how obedience to God fosters holiness and bestows blessing. To send us Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, to preach and live peace, grace, hope, joy, and love. To see Jesus rejected, to see him die, to see him buried. To raise Jesus from the dead and send the Holy Spirit to remind us of all we have in him and empower us to live like Jesus. To want us to live like Jesus, an abundant life infused with all the fruit of the Spirit, redeemed, free, loved. To still let us choose our own destiny. To promise the hope of forever, of resurrection from the dead, and final judgment. God loved us enough. God loves us enough. God will always love us enough. For God so loved the world. God loves you. God wants you to know it. God wants you to live in it. God wants you to be able to love others because you know you are loved. And God's love is expressed to us every week most tangibly as we gather at this table. The son who died and yet lives gave everything so we could know the depth of God's love. So come, drink the wine, eat the table, eat the bread, know you are loved. Wow. I read that right off the page. Eat from the table. Know you are loved. God loves you. Go love the world with him.